This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, filling in today for your regular host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Andrew Miller. Hello. And joining us from Ontario is Abraham Blondeau. Good day. And from our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And in Jerusalem, Israel is Brent Noctegal. Good to be with you. Well, Russia's illegal war of aggression on Ukraine is now in its 86th day. It's been a particularly notable week for the southern city of Mariupol. To bring us the latest on this, we'll go to Abraham Blondeau. Yeah, this week became official that the city of Mariupol uh, fell to Russian forces. And that city, it's it's in southeast Ukraine um, on the, the coast of the Black Sea. It's an important port city. Uh, for weeks, the Ukrainians, they've been putting up a, a stiff resistance there. They were cornered in the Azastal steel plant, held up there. And there were, they were thinking around a thousand civilians were taking refuge there. And uh, the initial reports suggested that thousands and thousands of Russian troops were held up on the offensive because uh, of the this last stand that was taking place. But this week, it appears that the defense collapsed and... Uh, the, the remaining troops surrendered. Uh, this is what foreign policy had to say on the uh, on the fall of Maripol. Quote, the capitulation means that almost 12 weeks in, Russia has something to show for its invasion. It can now claim control of an unbroken swath of territory from Russia's border to Crimea, more than 200 miles away. It also means Ukraine's Black Sea shoreline has been cut in, in half since the war began. End quote. So uh, I think this is significant because now Russia has a land bridge between its its uh, territory and uh, Crimea, which just creates a lot more strategic uh, options for them. But also the other other part of this is that it's it's revealing more and more atrocities that are happening. The longer the war goes on, the more brutal it becomes. That it's hard to know exact figures right now but the ukrainian officials are saying that around 21,000 civilians have been killed in that southern region and that russia evacuated 134,000 people from the city and 33,000 of of them were forcibly deported so this is a, a theme that um, the trumpets uh, reported on before that uh, putin is deporting people out of ukraine into russia just taking them completely out of their of their country, and this includes uh, seventeen hundred fighters that surrendered there. Uh, so we're not sure what the the fate of these surrendered soldiers will be. There is some satellite imagery that suggests that they're finding more mass graves uh, around Mariupol, like they did in other parts of Ukraine once the the Russians uh, pulled back. So it will take time to confirm these things. But nonetheless, it is showing just how brutal the war is becoming and, and just the massive the, the massive destruction it's having on people. This over 12 million people have been displaced due to the war. And so we're just seeing a, a higher and higher human cost of this war. While both sides keep uh, slugging it out, it looks like it's becoming more and more a war of attrition. 
but yeah, it's just the, the human toll just keeps skyrocketing each week. Yeah, so this this is a big victory for Russia, the land bridge that they've long coveted, uh, but it's still all going pretty slowly for the Russians. You know, when when this war first started back in February, just about everyone, myself included, thought that Russia would win a quick victory over Ukraine. Uh, But then in April, the Ukrainians liberated Kiev, their capital city. And now just over the last few days, even though the Ukrainians did lose Mariupol, they were able to liberate Kharkiv, the second largest city. And they're now continuing to kind of push the Russians back around that part of the country. And, And there's really not a whole lot of movement in the south right now. So it just looks like it could be coming into kind of a culmination phase or maybe a prolonged stalemate or even a shift, some are saying, in in Ukraine's favor. I wonder what are your thoughts about just the overall direction and where this is all heading? Yeah, I think it's difficult to, um, I mean, the conflict, it's 12 weeks old. uh, So wars can go on for a long time. And and a lot of them, they, they do swing back and forth. Uh, if we look at a historical perspective, I think like many um, expected Russia to have more success. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm not surprised as well. Um, if we look back at the war in Iraq, you had the American superpower taking on uh, first the Iraqi army, which they crushed, but then the American army, they almost lost the war to a bunch of terrorists with AK 47s and roadside bombs. America was was razor thin to losing that war, um, and they they didn't they weren't fighting um, a military that had Western military technology, like the Ukrainians have. So on on the ground, I'm not surprised Russia is having so much trouble, just because uh, we've never really seen a, an army fight with these weapons before. And if if America almost lost to the terrorists in Iraq then I expect Russia to have a hard time against the biggest army in Europe and the Ukrainian army. But I think the other other part that informs our, our view of it is that uh, no matter what the numbers say or, or this or that, uh, the Bible does have a principle. Uh, it says the battle is the eternals. God does determine the outcome of wars and battles. And so no matter how things seem on the ground, we can have a certainty uh, of the big picture view of what's going to happen. And, and that kind of gives us uh, more clarity because it is difficult to assess these things uh, as they happen day to day. Yeah. Well, would you be able to, you know, you mentioned the, the Bible's outlook there. Could you place this in the context of Bible prophecy for the listeners and just let them know what they could read to better understand what sort of the big picture outcomes will be? Yeah. Um, our trumpet editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, he, he uh, wrote an article entitled, uh, Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine that was uh, featured in, in the latest Trumpet magazine. And I think that's just gives a great overview of uh, showing Russia's intentions, what's going on there, why Russia wants to conquer Ukraine and why they'll use any means possible to, to, to reach those aims. But also uh, it, it puts in the context, the bigger picture. Mr. Flory draws attention to that the biggest outcomes from the Ukraine war isn't necessarily what happens inside Ukraine. It's how the war in Ukraine is affecting everything else in the world, specifically Europe, even America. Um, you can see Ukraine is having these massive ripple effects. And the longer the war goes on, the more these ripples spread across the world. And they're just really affecting everything that we see. So there's many Bible prophecies it touches, but specifically the what's going on in Europe right now. And even that 
over time, Russia and the Asian alliance will become stronger. Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine is the name of that article by Mr. Gerald Flurry. We will include a link to that in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for that, Abe. For the next segment, we will stick with the subject of Russia's war on Ukraine and take a look at how Russia is faring in the economic arena as it faces all kinds of unprecedented sanctions from the Western world. For this, we'll go to Mr. Richard Palmer. Yes, just like uh, you heard, Russia obviously is doing a lot worse in the physical war than most people expected going into it. They're also doing a lot better in the economic war than most people expected going into it. So we got some very significant economic data published over the last week, looking at Russia's current account surplus from January to April. So this is basically looking at the profit that Russia is making from what they sell to the world. You know, the money they get from selling imports minus the money they spend buying things from other countries. So their kind of profit through trade with the rest of the world that they made was around about a hundred billion dollars. And to put that in perspective, over the same period one year ago, it was $27.5 billion. So, you know, this isn't just a small increase. This is a fourfold increase. And the reason for this is, is just a very fundamentally flawed sanctions regime. The way that this has gone uh, there's a lot of Western countries that will no longer sell to Russia. So Russia doesn't have much that they can spend their money on. Uh, however, other countries are still willing to buy from Russia. And what they are buying is oil and gas. And the way these sanctions have happened, they've ended up sh- shooting up the price uh, of oil and gas while countries are still trading with Russia. So you've gotten to the point now where in some cases, Europe, on a particularly bad day, is sending a billion euros to Russia uh, to pay for energy imports. And all of these countries, they're still importing vast amounts just at inflated prices uh, and really funding that war effort. So instead of impoverishing Russia, uh, Russia has quite a significant amount of, of foreign currency and of, uh, of money coming in. Yeah, yeah, that is really humbling to see just how useless the sanctions uh, have been. And and in some ways, they're even helping the Russians. And then we've also seen a big rally of the ruble this week. uh, Well, over the last few weeks that has defied so many expectations. It's, It's just rallied to the strongest level in years. Do you have a feel for how much of that rally is the result of natural market forces and how much of it is just capital controls that have been imposed by the Kremlin? Yeah, there's a couple of really important points there. That's uh, something, the, the rally of the ruble is another aspect of this story. Usually, if a currency becomes strong, that's an indication that the econ- that, that, that country's economy is doing well. If you have a strong dollar, that's usually a, an indication that the American economy is doing well. So the strong ruble, uh, you know, that reflects very strongly generally on the Russian economy. But there's an important caveat there in that the value of the ruble is not just kind of allowed to be set by market forces. The Russian government is very heavily involved in setting that exchange rate. So what would the exchange rate be without the Russian government being involved? Probably less than it is. It probably would not be as strong as it is. Uh, But government manipulation isn't the only factor there. There's another critical factor is that the the Russians are saying, if you're going to buy energy off us, 
you must buy it in rubles. Uh, you, you, know, you have to pay for that in rubles. And so that creates a demand for the ruble. It means that if you want to buy Russian energy, you've got to go out and buy rubles to give to Russia. Uh, and that's been boosting the value of the ruble as well. And that's something that where we've seen in recent weeks, Europe was kind of initially was cool kind of saying, no, we would never even think of paying in rubles. We're not going to do that. Uh, yet quietly, just about every major European economy reached a deal with Russia to pay in rubles. There's been more and more coming out about how Germany and about how it Italian companies tend to be paying for their energy in rubles. So that's another reason uh, behind its strength. And then you know another aspect, I think, that's, that's behind some of this rallying in, in terms of uh, confidence in the Russian economy and things this week, you know, Europe's talking about... Uh, sanctioning Russian oil and gas, cutting off Russian oil, but in the future, doing it down the line. And so in the short term, what that means is for all these different European energy companies, it's telling them, go buy everything that you can from Russia right now, because sooner or later, you're not going to be able to, no matter what the price. And so that's kind of even feeding this feeding frenzy where they're buying everything they can from Russia at the moment. Uh, so you know, intended to or not, so much of the way that these sanctions have been implemented, particularly by European powers, has ended up giving Russia a short-term boost rather than causing Russia major harm. Yeah, so this really shows that as much as many of us would like to think that we could bring Putin to his knees with sanctions, it is not at all going that way. And uh, if we look at Bible prophecy, as as Abe just pointed out, we would expect Russia to eventually emerge stronger from this war and, and from the sanctions and everything else. Um, what literature would you recommend to listeners who would like to better understand that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, Russia is going to continue to play a, a critical role in Bible prophecy. This is not the end of Vladimir Putin. These are not critical crippling sanctions that are going to bring him down the way some have said. Uh I think one place, a great place to point you to is the next trumpet print edition, the one that we're just kind of finishing up, going to the printers at the moment. It should be up on the website next week, trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry. Uh, I believe we'll have a big article in there talking about Germany's relationship with Russia and the way that Germany kind of pretends to oppose Russia while supporting it. And a lot of the failure of the sanctions gets down to this policy by Germany, this kind of pretense of, oh, we're doing something while actually the sanctions even end up helping Russia uh, in some cases and in others are just much less than, than they appear. So that's a great place to go. That won't be available until midweek, though, next week. If you want something more immediate, we do have an article up on the website right now by Josue Michels, Russia is winning the economic war. And then what that article does and the, the prophecy that that points you to uh, is this idea in this key of David titled The Times of the Gentiles, where... The Bible has uh, talks about this, you know, the whole world basically turning against America, that all of these different countries ganging up against America uh, and Britain and these other Israelite countries in, in Bible prophecy. And that's what you see happening here. You see all of these different countries coming together, you know, Russia siding with or China siding with Russia, India supporting Russia to a certain extent, Europe now even quietly supporting Russia. And there's more kind of specifics that we could get into. But the big overall trend there is this uh, this whole world turning against America, and that's going to bring about some very dramatic changes in the world, but dramatic changes that are key milestones uh, in God's plan for end-time events. So uh, the Times of the Gentiles is the name of the key of David, that article links to, and that article is called Russia is Winning the Economic War. 
We will include links to both of those in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We'll take a look now at Lebanon, where the jihadist terror group Hezbollah is rapidly losing power. For this, we'll go to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, there was an election earlier this week. Its results came out on May 17th and revealed that Hezbollah has lost its majority, or Hezbollah and its allies, I should say, have lost the majority in its 128-seat parliament for the first time um, for about a decade. In 2018, the previous election, uh, Hezbollah had, and its allies, I should say, and I'll explain that, um, had over 70 seats, and now they've dropped back to 61. So you needed 66, or 65, I should say, to be the majority in the parliament, form majority coalition. But now that's that's lost, and this is being seen as many as as really a a um, a sign by the the population. I think about 49% of Lebanese actually voted in it. Many of them just ignore the elections altogether. Uh, however, it is a sign by the population that not only have they have a growing frustration with Hezbollah, is that they really do expect um, the people that have allied with Hezbollah in the past to really consider that. And in Lebanon, you have this this really diverse population where you have about a third are Christians, um, and then about uh, I think it's a, a, a just around half or just over half uh, are Muslims, and and half of those are Shiites, and half of those are Sunnis. And so what you've had, the only way that Hezbollah can ever gain a majority in in the parliament is to have a relationship with the Christian groups, some of the Christian groups. And up to this time, the largest party uh, inside the Christian inside the Lebanese parliament was uh, the Christian Free Patriotic Movement led by President Michael Aoun. And now that party has lost its seat as the chief Christian party. There have been lots of other... Um, uh, that has been lost to another Christian group that is very much an anti-Hezbollah party. So they are the largest party inside the Lebanese parliament now. So you do have this growing shift, I think, in Lebanon where Christians in particular are starting to choose a little bit differently than they have in the past uh, away from uh, those that would ally with Hezbollah. You also saw a, a new phenomenon coming up in this election where you had very much unaligned independents um, that are just basically sick of the whole corrupt political scene in Lebanon that's been in existence for the past couple of decades. Uh, There were 16 uh, or 13, sorry, members of what they call the opposition groups. These are groups that have come out of the 2019 protests uh, against um, the corruption in Lebanon's politics. They, at this point, say they're not aligned to any of the major parties. We'll see when push comes to shove inside the parliament where they vote. But these are people that are rising up saying, hey, we're, we're sick of the whole system and we, we, it needs to come down. So they're not really a friend of any of the traditional parties uh, inside Lebanon. Um, but you've got just a horrible situation in Lebanon, massive unemployment, massive inflation, uh, bread shortages even today. Uh, there's a bread shortage in Lebanon. And so the people are starting to vote with their feet that they're kind of moving away from the traditional parties and especially those Christian parties that would ally themselves with Hezbollah. They want something new. So it really looks like the uh, the Hezbollah party there is on the way out. And this is pushing forward some key Bible prophecies that the Trumpet's been discussing for years. Yeah, it is It is hard to say. I mean, Hezbollah 
and their Shiite ally won all the seats that they won previously. So their bastion of support among the among the Shiites remains strong. So they're not going anywhere. Uh, they also have massive coercive uh, abilities among the other uh, among the other parties and along the uh, the the populace because of their military might. They're stronger than the Lebanese military, so it's hard for them to just disappear overnight. And and such a collapse would be very dangerous for Lebanon, perhaps leaving, leading to a civil war. There was talk of by Hezbollah. Um, parliamentarians straight away after this election saying we may have lost but don't you dare uh, decide to go into uh, forming any other government that doesn't have Hezbollah on the inside meaning that they want a national unity government this is where a coalition of minority parties come together from both sides and then they they're going to govern the country uh, together Um, but I don't know if that's going to happen Uh, we'll see because you've got about You've got more than half is anti-Hezbollah. Uh, I think you have about 65, 65 to 68 of the parliamentarians that are actually anti-Hezbollah. And they might push forward with some type of, of government that doesn't have Hezbollah on the inside at all. And basically, the Hezbollah guy said that'll push, you know, Lebanon to the abyss. Don't be so, don't be so um, selfish as to do that. And really, that is what we're looking for in terms of biblical prophecy. Unfortunately, for Le- Lebanon, is that we do expect a big shift and perhaps a civil war directly pre- preceding that. Um, well being the culmination of this shift in Lebanon away from an Iranian-backed ally such as Hezbollah. The Bible shows in Psalm chapter 83 that there is that Lebanon forms a, a part of a coalition of, of nations that's allied with more of the Sunni, moderate Sunni states, allied with Saudi Arabia, that's going to be allied even with Turkey, um, that sees that is not allied with the Iranians. And so we have expected a big shift away from Hezbollah uh, and because it's been an Iranian uh, puppet. And, you know, this election is kind of showing that that's beginning um, to, to see that, that Lebanon is going to fully exit the Iranian orbit. Again, this is not a process that can happen peacefully, though. Um, it takes a lot for Iran to give up on Hezbollah. It'll take a lot for Hezbollah to cut its ties with Iran. And that's why Mr. Flurry has has forecast that there will be some type of civil war going forward in Lebanon that would see Iran on the outside looking in. We have a great article by Mihalio uh, Zekic, and this is going to be published later on, I think, uh, perhaps on Sunday or Monday. It's entitled, Hezbollah is Losing Power in Lebanon, and it makes these biblical prophecies um, makes them accessible to you uh, in terms of understanding what just happened with this election. Hezbollah is losing power in Lebanon is the name of that article by Mihailo Zekic. So keep an eye out on thetrumpet.com for that in the coming days. Thanks very much for that, Brent. We'll turn our attention now to the United States where many of the radical leftists have their pitchforks out, blaming a conservative political commentator for the mass shooting that just took place in Buffalo, New York. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, as a big tragedy occurred in America last weekend when um, a gunman drove 200 miles to Buffalo, New York, and sh- uh, shot 13 people, murdered 10 of them, uh, injured the other three. Uh, really um, just graphic stuff. They, he live-streamed it on the, the internet and left an 180-page manifesto uh, explaining what he did. Now... Um, uh, also, sadly, 
we haven't heard much about the actual facts of what was in that manifesto or or the um the actual trends behind what this what this man did because the the media almost immediately within minutes started blaming Fox News host Tucker Carlson for the massacre. Though if you can actually get your your hands on a copy of that manifesto the uh, the shooter he basically comes out and he never mentions Tucker Carlson. There's there's no proof that he's actually ever even watched Tucker Carlson's show. He makes a big deal to say I'm not a Christian, I'm not a conservative. Uh, I'm not he's like I'm actually a pretty radically left-wing socialist, but I'm a national socialist who who believes uh, and the superiority of the white race in, in, in addition to these left-wing economic ideas. Uh, and then he has a big con, uh, conspiracy theory part in there about how the, uh, how the Jews are working with Fox News, so he's definitely not a Fox News fan, to replace white Americans with Americans from the third world. And so uh, a lot of things that uh, <laughs> really differentiate him from... Tucker Carlson that you're not hearing about the uh, the media has just really latched onto the fact that they're like, well, he says that like the, the the media elites are trying to replace white Americans with third world immigrants, uh, and Tucker Carlson says that sometimes too. Therefore, they must be similar, uh, ignoring the fact that actually probably more so than even Tucker Carlson, uh, it's the left wing media outlets that say that Grabian. Uh, put together a pretty shocking clip. I think they played it on the Trumpet uh, Daily Radio show yesterday about all the the different leftists over the past two or three years talking about the the de- the demographics is destiny trend. Basically, leftists saying that like, oh, don't worry about um, Democrats winning elections. They said as we bring in more uh, immigrants from Latin America, they usually vote liberal. Uh, that actually might starting be in change, but they say they usually vote liberal. So we'll um, we'll we'll get a president and a, a Democratic president in the White House every election from here on forward. Uh, I have an article actually on the website right now that uh, quotes a little bit from a Salon magazine article titled "A Permit Democratic Majority That Is Advocating Bringing in Immigrants from Mexico to Put a Democrat in the White House Every Election." Uh, it also quotes from a, a liberal think tank, the Center for American Progress, and from Barack Obama himself, uh, both saying that if we can get a legal path to immigration for all these illegal immigrants who are coming here, then the Democrats can win every election. So this uh, this gunman, if you're if you're claiming he was radicalized by watching news media outlet, he just as likely to have been radicalized by watching CNN as watching Fox News, because both both outlets say that the Democrats are bringing immigrants here to um, vote for socialist policies. It's just that one of them says that, well, we need to do this. Uh, and then the other media outlet says, well, actually, we need to have uh, the DHS step in and have some better vetting on the border so we can determine who's coming here and who's not. Yeah, so despite the narrative that the leftists are pushing, this uh, mass murderer didn't actually tick many of the conservative boxes. Could you maybe talk just a little bit more about some of the parts in his manifesto that the leftists have been overlooking? Right, because what the um, what the accusation against Carlson has been is that he's promoting uh, great replacement theory. Um, now, great, great replacement theory uh, is not something that 
Carlson's, it's not a phrase he uses. Uh, it's actually a phrase that was coined by um, uh, a fascist thinker in France that is much more in line with what this manifesto talked about, how he said that the, the French guy was talking more about Muslim immigration into Europe than he was Hispanic immigration into America. Uh, and then the shooter, for some reason, shot mostly African-Americans who've been in this citizens for generations. Uh, but this great replacement theory, it is specifically a conspiracy theory about uh, Jews taking over the power positions and bringing, um, bringing in immigrants from third world countries to destroy the white race. And so you can definitely see when you, uh, he got this from a very specific source that uh, Tucker Carlson or Fox News never talk about. They, they, they never mention a Jewish conspiracy theory uh, and, and actually usually don't even mention much about race. Uh, they just highlight the the need to um, have secure borders and having people immigrating through legal channels, not illegal channels. Uh, and that's not a and that's not a fringe view. As a matter of fact, the, uh, generally speaking, inflation and immigration are the two issues that Joe Biden and his administration poll lowest on. Most Americans, uh, a majority of Americans. Uh, really think we need tighter border security. Uh, Tucker Carlson, he's been doing a number of programs about how the Biden administration's using the Air Force and buses to uh, pick up immigrants uh, across the border and settle them throughout American cities. And so I think that's one of the things that the, he's ticked off the left with. They, they would rather people not know what the Biden administration's doing uh, because these 55% of Americans uh, are likely to vote for Republicans this midterm election, which is really what the radical left is afraid of. They're trying to say, it's like, oh, well, any of these 55% of Americans could be the next mass shooter. It's like, no, it's like, like almost none of these people are reading neo-fascist blogs from France. They just want to elect some politicians uh, who will actually have the Department of Homeland Security do the job we use taxpayer funding to pay them to do. Yeah, for the leftists to be, you know, politicizing a tragedy like this mass murder is just, I think, a very sobering sign of how deep the, the divisions in America are right now. And Andrew has an article up on the trumpet.com right now. It's called Radical Left Blames Fox News' Tucker Carlson for Inspiring Mass Shooting. And uh, that really puts this in the prophetic context. So please take a look at that article if you'd like to understand more about this story in the big picture context. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. We will take a quick break now. And when we come back, we'll talk about Germany arming Europe, some good news for Benjamin Netanyahu, Sri Lanka's economic crisis, and some disturbing FBI investigations. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Since the outbreak of Russia's war on Ukraine, many expected Germany as the leader of Europe to lead the way in helping to arm the Ukrainians so that they could defend themselves. But the Germans have, they've really dragged their feet at every step, just blocking and delaying all kinds of shipments of weapons. 
but now they have a new plan in the works. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go once again to Mr. Palmer. Yes, it's very typical, I think, of Germany's response here, a plan that they can kind of wave around as showing they're helping Ukraine, while at the same time, uh, really helping their efforts. What or helping themselves? What a lot of kind of plans to help Ukraine have revolved around is is so-called backfilling, where uh, it's all about hand-me-downs. You know, the 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 Eastern European countries they get rid of their old Soviet-era equipment, they pass that on to Ukraine. That, in a lot of ways, is good for Ukraine because that's the equipment they're used to working with, rather than kind of getting some of the brand new NATO tanks that that kind of operate quite differently from that Soviet era equipment. And then those Eastern European countries turn around and buy upgrade their material with more modern equipment, either from the United States or in this case, Germany. So this new push, Germany is calling it a, a ring swap that they announced on May 18th. They're seeing the Czech Republic pass on a load of their old tanks to Ukraine. And then they'll receive 15 Leopard 2A4 tanks. So a, a fairly modern German tank in return. And this, this, so far, a lot of this backfilling has focused on American equipment. I think it's interesting to start to see Germany playing this role. But I think this is potentially, this whole issue of backfilling is one of the interesting or, and, and less talked about aspects of this Ukrainian invasion where you, you've you got, uh, this is happening all across Europe and you've got people getting rid of their old air forces and getting a new air force upgraded courtesy of the United States. America has just passed their 40 billion uh, spending package, which is a, I mean, it, it's a gargantuan amount of, of, of money. This is more than countries like Italy and, and Australia spend on their annual defense budgets. Uh, that's going to be a whole lot of money sloshing around. And I don't think it's completely clear where this money will be going yet. Is some of that going to go towards backfilling? Is America going to be paying for a lot of these Eastern European countries to upgrade uh, their defense systems and pass the hand-me-downs onto Ukraine? You know, we could see a dramatically more powerful Eastern Europe emerge from this whole process uh, funded by the American taxpayer. And now with Germany getting involved in that, this could also be an opportunity for Germany's military, for a lot of these Eastern European countries to get more integrated into the German military system. And don't forget, you know, Germany shares, a lot of the Dutch army is under the German command. There are joint tank battalions already between countries like Germany and the Czech Republic, I believe, and Germany and Slovenia. Uh, then you start getting these countries relying more and more on German military equipment. And this could prove a, a big step forwards just on a very practical level towards European military integration, getting all of these armies working using the same equipment rather than having Western Europe using NATO standard and then Eastern Europe using um, the kind of more Soviet Russian standard. Yeah, that is just a stunning you know, aid package coming from the United States, $40 billion, uh, bringing the total U.S. war investment to $54 billion just in the last couple of months. Then this week, we also learned about another $18 billion coming from G7 countries, of which U the U.S. is the most prominent country there. So it is just uh, uh, quite a lot of cash there. And you can really see how this this funding could be setting up, I think, some of those prophecies that uh, the Trumpet has been expecting. Right. I mean, I think it's easy. 
it's easy to have a lot of sympathy for this idea of supporting the the innocent Ukrainians and um, you know kind of confronting Russia, uh, but with you know how big this document is, how little time they've been to scrutinize it, and and who this administration is it within the in the United States right now, it's hard to be confident that that is what this forty billion dollars will end up doing. And so, you know, there's all kinds of corrupt links, of course, between the Bidens and, and Ukraine. And then you throw in this this kind of this backfilling idea, uh, you know, what this money is going to be used for, I think, is a, is a big question mark. But in terms of Bible prophecy, you know, this Europe getting together and unifying, you know, this was a keynote prophecy of Herbert W. Armstrong, something that he talks about throughout his ministry, something that Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry um, picked up on very quickly. After, after you know, the church that Mr. Armstrong founded started rejecting those ideas, this has been something that he has been talking about right from the start of the Trumpet magazine, because it's just such a clear and specific prophecy from the Bible. You know, Revelation 17. You, 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 you don't need a huge amount of Bible knowledge to read this and to understand. It's talking about ten kings coming together and pooling their power, giving up their power to what's called in their, that prophecy the beast or this empire. Uh, and that's exactly what's going to happen here. Ten nations are going to come together and they're going to put their power together. They'll give up their power to this overall, overall empire. And so all of this kind of European uh, military unification is leading directly to that. All of these different European countries using the same military standards. Germany forming links to all of these because they're going to be the heart and core of this military power. Uh, it's all this prophecy starting to be fulfilled. There's so much of these different prophecies. They're here already. Uh, and I mean, the good news behind all that is that these prophecies are just critical stepping stones in God's end time. And so much of those stepping stones, you know, we've, we've already hopped over them. Uh, this is uh, the, these, this is a you know, very urgent times and prophecy that is being fulfilled very rapidly. But we, take, we have a trends article that takes you more comprehensively through those prophecies. It's called Why the Trumpet Watches Europe's Push Towards a Unified Military. And that will will go through and show exactly why these prophecies refer to Europe, why they refer to a European empire and help you understand uh, what's happening here. And then we also have one that uh, an article that should go up on Monday, Germany arms Europe except Ukraine uh, on the latest news that's happening here. Germany arms Europe except Ukraine is the name of that article. And then we will also link to why the Trumpet watches Europe's push toward a unified military. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We'll take a look now at Israel, where the former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has just won a significant victory in the legal battle against him. For this, we'll go once again to Brent Noctegal. So this story, you're not going to hear much of it in the, in the international press, because uh, in the lead up to Israel's elections that ousted Mr. Netanyahu, this prosecution, uh, the prosecutorial case against him for bribery, breach of trust and other type of things, fraud, uh, was front and center. And it really did impact the elections that led to his downfall. And so this case is ongoing now. Mr. Netanyahu is the leader of the opposition, uh, still leader of Likud, but he has to attend this um, this case against him uh, during the week. And on Sunday, there was a really big uh, announcement. This is where the prosecution asked if they could change the indictment, amend the indictment against Netanyahu, basically saying that, hey, we got some of our facts wrong. Can we change it up a little bit? Uh, and this specifically relates to the fact that last week, uh, Netanyahu's team 
was able to use a mix of GPS, cell phone, location data, as well as the data from Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's office and his security clearance to demonstrate that the, the, a meeting that was crucial, a crucial meeting that Netanyahu had said to have taken place with him, where he advised one of his aides to go and bribe uh, a, a, a media outlet to get him favorable coverage. The prosecution had that set on a, on a certain day, that this happened in a certain day uh, back in 2015. And yet Netanyahu proved that this was absolutely impossible to have taken place on this certain day. This is what Yona Jeremy Bob said. He's a writer for Jerusalem Post. He said, This revelation might be the single most important factual victory by the defense to date in undermining aspects of the prosecution's narrative. Then the, the Jerusalem Post's editor-in-chief, uh, Yaakov Katz, uh, he said this just in, in a report this week. Uh, he said this, while it may just seem like a small mistake of a date, this is no small matter. The alleged meeting was the prosecution's smoking gun. Uh, it is the meeting where the prosecution claims Netanyahu gave Filber, then Director General of the Communications Ministry, the order to give Bezek, who's a media company, whatever he wanted to essentially enable the bribery scheme to move ahead. So this meeting was so crucial. This is the one where Netanyahu told his, his assistant to go bribe them so they can get favorable coverage. Kat says, if there's no meeting, there might be no bribery. And if there's no bribery, there is no case against Netanyahu. <laughs> Which I think puts it so succinctly. And 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 this is something that it, it, people on Net, the Netanyahu side and Netanyahu himself have said is, there is no case against me. And here, the crucial meeting that is meant to have taken place uh, to set off everything has been proven to be a factual event, at least on the date that the prosecution claims. Wow. Yeah. So it looks like the smoking gun is no longer smoking. Uh, it just blows a big hole in the prosecution's case and, and could shape up to be just a significant victory for Netanyahu. Um, and it looks like there could be some serious corruption kind of exposed on, on the part of the judicial system and the law enforcement. Do you think that we could expect a pardon for Netanyahu? And, uh, and if so, what might that mean for the future of Israel's politics? So this is Yaakov Katz's... Um his opinion is that it's time to pardon Netanyahu. It's what he called his column. And he's coming at it from the scene that, whoa, this whole case might be kind of made up. And yet the political divide is so strong now that if Netanyahu fights this to the end and proves fraud, proves uh, that there was corruption in both the, the courts and the, and the police, which is being proven, um, then there's going to be the Israel judicial system and police system turn on its head if Netanyahu goes after blood. So, or if for some reason, you know, the prosecution is actually eventually successful in some way, Netanyahu's people are not going to accept it at all because it's been proven to be, in cases like this, uh, fraudulent. And so he says, well, what's best for the country is just to offer him a pardon right now before he's even been convicted of anything. And then he can kind of a pardon means that he can't go back to the uh, back in parliament, but he can at least you know not be involved in it won't won't be having any prison time. There's no way in the world Netanyahu is going to accept that. So what even the Jerusalem Post's editor in chief, uh, what he's saying in here is, let's just hush up what happened. Let's just try and push Netanyahu to accept the pardon. 
because we can't upset everything. We can't reveal the roots of this fraud because it might be very dangerous for the state of Israel. So this is just really interesting that you have the media coming out on the side of of the the uh, prosecution in this case, I think, and it's very similar to what you see in the United States. How more and more fraud, I think, against uh, against Donald Trump is being brought to the surface, and people saying the media is saying there's nothing to see here. Uh, what? Let's not not go back and investigate what happened in the election um, in in 2020. And here you have. The same thing taking place for Israel's election. Fraud is being presented to the public, and the people, say, the the media, is saying, "Let's not go back and investigate it." But I don't see it's any way that that doesn't happen. And I think these two phenomena are, are linked. What happened to Trump in his election in 2020, the stolen election, and also as increasingly coming out now, the case against Netanyahu being so fraudulent that it did sway the election. Uh, to uh, to the centrist and leftist parties, that he th- these are very similar, and perhaps we're going to see just as we're seeing the tide turn towards Trump in the United States, the same thing happened with Netanyahu here in Israel. And uh, what what literature would you recommend for listeners who would like to sort of understand that aspect of it, the link between what's happening with uh, Trump in the U.S. and and what's underfoot with Netanyahu there? People can read what will happen after Trump regains power. It's mostly about Donald Trump, but there's a significant part about uh, Netanyahu in that as well. Well, thanks very much for that, Brent. For the next story, we'll take a look at Sri Lanka, where economic crisis has led to all kinds of serious unrest and even a historic default on debt. For this, we'll go once again to Abe. Yeah, things keep getting worse in Sri Lanka. I think a lot of us have seen over the past couple of weeks the videos and footage coming out of that country of riots, uh, looting, violence. People are hunting down politicians as they drive to work or, or walk through the streets and beat them. The country can't afford to, to buy uh, more imports of food and gas. So the country has an acute food and fuel shortage. Uh, but now, as you mentioned, now the country has defaulted on its debt for the first time. So um, they failed to make obligations to pay uh, the make payments on foreign loans. So that Sri Lanka has about $51 billion in debt and they couldn't even make a payment of 76 million, which to us is a lot of money. But for most countries, that's not a ton of, of, of cash to come up with. But they couldn't even make a, a small payment like that. And it leaves them in a, in a catch-22 because you either pay the the interest on your loans to keep have goodwill with, with those nations, or do you put your money to buying more imports for your people? And so they, they just don't have enough money to keep the country running. Inflation is approaching 40%, and it's just rolling blackouts. Medicine is short. Just everything you can think of is going wrong with the country. But I think... What we're seeing is as the society implodes, it is it is a, a good warning to other nations around the world. Yeah, I think uh, this is just a really alarming situation that's unfolding there. And I, and I think we could view Sri Lanka as kind of a socioeconomic indicator for other Southeast Asian countries, especially. But even even here in the U.S., this should serve as a big warning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's pretty disturbing that. Um, there, there's uh, Egypt, Tunisia, and Pakistan. They're all about to the default, they think. 
Um, and South Asia usually falls in the path of uh, Sri Lanka, uh, especially all the countries that are in China's debt diplomacy trap, uh, like Sri Lanka is. All those countries are probably going to just follow the same pattern and just become vulnerable to China taking over everything. Um, but the recipe for disaster is actually even worse in the United States <laughs> and most Western countries. And uh, Mr. Palmer has a great article called uh, Could America Soon Look Like Sri Lanka, where he he goes through the recipe of what's the disaster that's going on there. And that includes you have debt, uh, inflation, corruption, uh, selling out your country to China. Uh, all these things, when they're mixed together, lead to crises like this. And so these countries like Sri Lanka, they seem pretty far away to us. Uh, Sri Lanka's right off the coast of India and the Indian Ocean. Uh, these other countries in South Asia, they might seem like they're third world countries that we don't have to be concerned about. But in actual fact, these are just a vivid warning to us that this is what's going to happen in our country soon if things don't change. So I think we do have to pay attention to this. And it is um, for humans, we, we do need something very visual to help us uh, <laughs> take these Bible prophecies seriously. And so I think Sri Lanka is just a great example of that. Um, of what's going to start happening around the world in more countries and eventually end up in the Western world as well. Could America Soon Look Like Sri Lanka is the name of that article, and we'll be sure to include a link to that in our notes for today's program. It goes through all of the uh, the relevant Bible prophecies about this. Well, thanks very much for that, Abe. And for our final story of the show today, we're going to take a look at the FBI here in the U.S., which is now investigating parents who challenged the radical leftist's agenda during school board meetings. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go once again to Andrew. Yeah, this is another shocking story. We talked a little bit in the first half of the show about uh, leftists targeting those who speak against them or who disagree with them. And this is one of the prime examples of that. There were two congressional representatives, Representative Jim Jordan and Representative Mike Johnson, who just published a letter uh, presenting evidence from whistleblowers within the FBI that under Attorney General Merrick Garland's leadership, the FBI is accepting calls from basically snitches who are attending school board meetings, and then they call in if any parent uh, gets upset at a teacher for mask mandates or vaccine mandates or critical race theory or gender fluidity teachings, uh, and then report them as potential terrorists. And then the FBI's got a database where they're actually flagging these people with an EDU official's threat tag under the Patriot Act to investigate them later. And they've got several examples of a. Uh, there's this one. Uh, there's this one mother who was uh, upset about the mask mandates, and she's actually um, politically active in her community. So she told the teacher, "Well, we're coming for you," meaning my political group is coming for your job like they said if you keep uh doing these mask mandates and teaching our children about gender fluidity and all that that like I said my our political activists we're, we're going to get you fired and so um someone called into the fbi had her flagged as a potential 
domestic terrorist under the Patriot Act, uh, and then had FBI officials actually come to her home uh, to inter uh, to interview her, kind of with the inference that she said, "Well, when we're coming for you, that she was going to kill a teacher or something like that." And there's dozens of examples like that where these um, <laughs> these FBI officials they know that pretty much every parent they've investigated so far uh, was not threatening physical harm to a teacher, uh, even if they were visibly upset at some of these transgender teachings and stuff like that being forced on their their children. But basically trying to use this as a, a bullying technique that, you know, you get too upset about, that you speak up too much about these uh, these new crazy ideas coming in schools and you could find yourself on the uh, on the wrong side of the law. Yeah, it really seems like this is an attack on families by the radical leftists. And you have an article up on thetrumpet.com about this right now. And in one section of that, you mention that both Karl Marx and Frederick Engels said that the abolition of the family was necessary for the, for the ultimate triumph of socialism. Um, could you talk a little bit about what exactly they said and how that's influencing the behavior of modern uh, progressives? Right, because I mean the, the the like the founding fathers of communism, Marx and Engels. I mean their their ultimate goal was a a world of perfect equality, and they realized that one of the causes of inequality is that some children um, inherit money from their parents or get a better education for their parents, and so there's like so basically it's like we need to uh, abolish the family unit and then have the straight teach all children equally, and uh, and from that like bad root. <laughs> Uh, you had all sorts of crazy leftist thinkers who were influential in the Democratic Party in the 60s talking about like, well, we need to promote homosexuality because that undermines marriage and will destroy the family and we'll let the government pick up the pieces. Or we need to promote uh, fornication and other sins like that because it'll destroy the family, let the government pick up the pieces. So the left definitely has a vested interest in tearing down the family unit and then having the public school system come in and do the teaching. And so uh, from an ideological standpoint, a lot of this stuff that the, these radicals are pushing about transgenderism and homosexuality and gender fluidity is just an attempt to tear down the family and then have the public school system raise your kids for you and teach them whatever they want. Uh, Mr. Uh, Herbert W. Armstrong was writing about that in the 60s, about the plot against the the plot against the family. And uh, he, he definitely highlighted how it was Satan inspired, but he also said a lot of it was uh, Satan inspired through communist tools. Like the, there was a legitimate communist conspiracy uh, against family. Uh, and he was writing about that back when, uh, when the, <laughs> when the communists were talking about no fault force laws and uh, like free love at hippie, uh, 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 hippie meetings uh, had nearly progressed to the level of it is today where they're trying to like even abolish the biological notion of of sex and gender uh, but you're definitely seeing that at the in the school system and uh, and just like the the corporate media and the radical leftists are slandering <laughs> Tucker Carlson as a mass murderer for talking about the dangers opposed by an open border uh, the FBI is prosecuting these parents as uh, domestic terrorists under an unconstitutional law that was meant to allow the government to target al-Qaeda uh, in order to just keep them too afraid to say anything about this, uh, this school system agenda.
Andrew has written an article that's up on thetrumpet.com right now. It's called Whistleblowers, FBI Investigating Parents Who Speak Out at School Board Meetings. So you can find a link to that in our show notes for today's program. And you can find links there to all of the articles and other pieces of literature that we've discussed today. That's on thetrumpet.com. Well, we are coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please email any questions or comments that you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Abraham Blondeau, Mr. Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. And we'll leave you today with these words from Mark Twain. I was seldom able to see an opportunity until it had ceased to be one. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.